Today we're talking about the stories we tell. Narratives that take root and stubbornly refuse to die. The economic version of urban legends. Today's culprit is the Federal Reserve. I watched the two-hour testimony of Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell so that you don't have to. And it was a masterclass in euphemisms intended to cover the Fed's desire to put more people out of work. Two million of you, to be exact. So let's talk about stories and legends. U to the N to the FTR. I'm fucking the Republic beating people where they are. Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry. Max brings the heat of a basic white guy. Could have run for office, could have got up off his ass. Hey. Could have made something other than a fucking podcast. But here we are, yo. The UNFPR show. Many faces ripping the script with the fuckers around the globe. And Brady brings it back for Tom McGovern. Let's go. On fuckers, on Canuckers, you're a fuckers 99. On the fuckers and some fuckers, they all out they fucking mind. From New York to Outagami, Halifax, and New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, yo fuck, fuck Milton Friedman. And Fucking the Republic is brought to you by over-caffeinated members, Alfie and Flash, Awesome A, Asshole, Free X, Cindy S, David MJ, Eric Wagner 101, Goat, G-Bookie of Ohio, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, and Michelle H. Chapter 1. In God We Trust. In the Consumer, Not So Much. There's an X factor that drives market behavior and the economy. Human emotion. The way people feel about the health of the economy has a lot to do with how they behave. If people feel secure in their jobs, they're more likely to spend on discretionary items. If they sense that interest rates are going to be low for a while, they might consider putting a home on the market to upgrade or perhaps to buy a home for the first time. Small business owners might consider hiring. Investors will consider riskier investment vehicles like equities. These sentiments are fueled by a couple of factors. First, people tend to have a keen sense of their own financial stability. A few bucks in savings, comfortably managing one's bills, going to dinner without the fear of a credit card declining. These are lived experiences that contribute to sentiment. Then there's narrative trends. If the news channels are promoting recession fears, if your boss is tightening the belt, and there's chatter among friends about feeling insecure, that's when assholes start to pucker. Such elegant phrasing. And yet another rambling introduction that's completely off topic. I promise there's a point here. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Very funny. I'm threading a couple of topics together here, so bear with me. The point is that narratives, feelings, stories, sentiments, even past experiences, all inform how events and circumstances evolve and take shape. The stories that we tell are powerful and enduring. To set things up, here's a connection that I want to make that reflects this phenomenon and relates to another topic that we've covered in great detail, student debt. Recently, I revived this topic on YouTube to add some additional context to our episodes since debt forgiveness is in front of the Supreme Court right now. And in case you missed it, take a listen to this clip from the awful Bill Maher show when he's interviewing Bernie Sanders. Okay, so I just want to read you this. Again, this is against why people sometimes, I think, question some of what you're saying. Uh, this is a survey, student loan forgiveness recipients. 73% of applicants say they are likely to spend their extra money on non-essential, including vacations, smartphone, drugs, and alcohol. They, they admitted that to the pollster. Who is this pollster? I, NBC, <laughs> NBC News. 
The point Mar is trying to make is that Americans, especially young ones, aren't responsible with money. They don't deserve giveaways, as he calls them. Tax breaks for the wealthy, forgiveness of PPP loans, amnesty to onshore trillions of dollars hidden offshore. These are responsible giveaways and handouts because they're for job creators. But money in the hands of average Americans will just be spent on consumables and entertainment, food, drugs, appliances, and general foolishness. First off, even if this was the case, which it's not, and I'll get to that later, he's literally prescribing things that reflect a healthy consumer economy. God forbid people buy weed, go to the movies, dine out, and travel. The man literally hosts a show where he smokes weed and talks about movies, food, and traveling. Fucking hypocrite. More to the point, that's not what the average American spends or would spend discretionary income on. Not even fucking close. So obviously, I was as curious as you heard Bernie was in that clip. Where did Bill Maher even get this information? Now, he says at the end that it was from NBC, but that's not the pollster, which was Bernie's question. Well, I tracked it down. It was a real poll conducted in October of 2022 by a private company. A private polling company? Nope, a private digital content company that creates contact aggregation websites and has about three employees, as far as I can tell. And those three employees are technically employed by a parent company that matches companies with private equity. And they also happen to specialize in polling? Not at all, but they are transparent with their methodology. Here's what it says at the end of the survey results. It was an online poll conducted on a survey platform called Pollfish. 1,250 Americans participated in the poll, and to qualify, respondents had to truthfully answer that they aren't currently students, but had applied or planned to apply for the loan forgiveness program. So 1,250 people responded to a poll on Pollfish conducted by a company that doesn't do polling, and these completely unscientific results made it into Bill Maher's big plan to catch Bernie off guard, out of his mouth and into the right-wing media echo chamber. Here's Dave Rubin, for example, keying in on this exact point. Most of them probably will buy weed and they will buy video games. What are the kids playing these days? Here's a channel called The Black Conservative Perspective commenting on the same segment. Right? No, no, no. They're actually like, no, we're going to take our student loan debt if it gets forgiven and we're going to go buy luxury goods. Right? We're going to buy more Starbucks. We're going to go on more vacations. We're going to buy more clothes. Uh, they're going to spend the money on luxurious goods. One of the bigger conservative think tanks, Americans for Tax Reform, quoted the survey directly in an article with the headline, quote, student loan bailout applicants will spend more on vacation, drugs, and gambling, end quote. I don't know who else covered these facts in this way, but just these two clips alone have more than a half a million views already, and you know that the think tank is ringing this shit out all over D.C. And now it's in the ether, all because Bill Maher has a shitty staff and is too lazy to think about this stuff for himself any self-respecting pundit would have questioned the veracity of a poll that made such wild claims. It's why Bernie looked at him like he had three heads. Of course, Marr isn't a pundit or a journalist. He's a comedian with an entertainment show. But we've lost the ability to discern between news and entertainment. And this plays into the larger narrative that I want to focus on. And that's the idea that Americans are not trusted by those in charge to responsibly manage disposable income. That in order to maintain balance in the economy, a few million need to be unemployed, and the vast majority of us are to live paycheck to paycheck so that we don't accumulate enough spending power and freedom to move about the job market in search of something better. 
To wit, the economic pundit class, personified by Larry Summers, squarely laid inflation at the feet of the workers who quit their jobs en masse during the pandemic or opted to move about the country to work remotely. Workers are killing the corporate real estate market because they refuse to return to the office, or so it goes. Instead of admitting that wages have been suppressed in this country for more than 40 years, and commercial landlords hiked corporate rents to the stratosphere because of favorable refinancing and capital withdrawal conditions, workers have been blamed for everything from rent to the price of eggs. We know it isn't true. The data support the working class and not the pundits, and yet the narrative persists. UNFTR is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G., Ryan F., Sultan, Specker, Terry C., William M., W. Jeremy D., and The Memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 2. Enter the Federal Reserve Jerome Powell came down like Moses from on high to testify in front of the Senate Banking Committee as he's required to do at least twice a year. Powell is an extremely savvy politician in addition to being a well-respected official. We've talked about Powell's reputation before and his ability to bring warring factions together and calm a room. Nearly everyone on the committee in the two-plus hours of testimony was polite and deferential and thanked him for his steady hand. Strike that. All but one of the questioners. You cling to the idea that there's only one solution, lay off millions of workers. We need a Fed that will fight for families. And if you're not going to lead that charge, we need someone at the Fed who will. As is customary at these hearings, Senator Elizabeth Warren used her time to drive a stake through the idea that economic progress must always come at the expense of the working class. She pulled no punches during her allotted time, pressing Powell on this perspective. We'll get into other hot takes on the committee, which unsurprisingly fell along party lines, though shrouded in civility. But Warren's remarks stood out for their pointed hostility toward Powell and the worldview that guides the central banking system. Now, before we get too far into the weeds on the hearing, I think it's helpful to review what exactly the Federal Reserve does, because its very existence is mired in controversy. At any given time, the Fed can find itself in the crosshairs of groups all along the political spectrum. One of the most popular refrains from libertarians, for example, is, end the Fed. Likewise, it was adopted by many on the left, especially during the Occupy movement. Most people don't think about the Federal Reserve. Congress makes laws, the courts decide law, the Treasury prints the money, the Fed. I'm not pandering when I say that unfuckers probably know a thousand times more than the average citizen because people just don't have the time or the brain space to actually describe the role of the Fed. They probably have a vague notion of what it does and have likely heard of Alan Greenspan, who was treated like a celebrity until the housing crisis exposed his actions. For those who may not recall, Greenspan encouraged Americans to take out adjustable rate mortgages, signaling that rates were gonna remain low for the foreseeable future. He then proceeded to increase the federal funds rate 17 times in a row beginning in 2004. Many credit this as the pin that burst the housing bubble that led to the financial collapse in 2008. All a meek and feeble Greenspan could muster when reflecting on the Great Recession was that he didn't anticipate the level of systemic corporate greed in the country. Well, that's just fucking great! I do not fall into the end the Fed camp, by the way, because the alternative is either what we had prior to its existence, which are economic catastrophes nearly every other year, or... Bitcoin, which is what libertarians advocate for. That's it working out for you. 
Here's an overview, mostly courtesy of the St. Louis Fed, on what exactly the Fed is and does. The Federal Reserve System is overseen by Congress, but operates with a great deal of autonomy. There are three parts to the Fed, the Board of Governors, 12 regional reserve banks, and the FOMC, which stands for the Federal Open Market Committee. The Board of Governors oversees state-chartered financial institutions and bank holding companies. The regional reserve banks distribute currency to banks, lend them money, and process electronic payments. They also conduct research and report on regional economic issues and trends to help keep a finger on the pulse of different parts of the country. The FOMC is the main body that determines monetary policy. It's made of the Board of Governors, four Reserve Bank presidents, and the president of the New York Reserve Bank because New York is the center of the universe and all you other states can go scratch. Any chance you could stay on message here? You bet. Now here's the most important thing to know because you'll hear this a lot when you watch or read anything related to the Federal Reserve. The Fed has what is called a dual mandate from Congress. This is a statutory mandate that requires the Fed to make decisions through a specific prism. The first is called price stability, basically to manage inflation. The second is maximum employment. As the St. Louis Fed describes it, quote, the concept of maximum employment can be thought of as the highest level of employment that the economy can sustain over time, end quote. A few quick technical items before we get into the hearing. When reading about inflation, you often hear two different terms to describe it, and we've covered this before, but it bears repeating. The first is called CPI, which stands for the Consumer Price Index. It's compiled by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The second is the PCE from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. CPI tends to be used interchangeably with the term headline inflation. PCE is typically referred to as core inflation, and it excludes food and energy prices. So personally, I don't think there's much use for core for that very reason, but it does help to isolate certain trends that reflect housing data and services. So it's helpful if you want to really dig into the numbers, but for real impact on the consumer, headline inflation is what you most often hear about for obvious reasons, and it's what you most often feel. A few other technical items and regulations that bear covering as well. Boring! I know, but it's good to bone up on this stuff. When financial people talk about tailoring, they're basically talking about the Fed's ability to tailor regulations and policies to match certain circumstances. For example, liquidity and capital requirements on banks. Capital requirements are a way to constrict lending and ensure that banks have enough money to cover catastrophic defaults. Much of the language that relates to these provisions came on the heels of the financial crisis and can be found in the Dodd-Frank Consumer Protection Act and subsequent updates. Similarly, there's something called Basel requirements or Basel requirements that apply to multinational banks. Same liquidity principle, but based on international standards. In terms of the Fed's powers and the dual mandate, here's what the Fed does and is capable of. First off, it sets the baseline interest rate for the nation, the federal funds rate. This is the rate at which commercial banks lend to one another, and it's important. Money is constantly moving. Balance sheets change by the minute, literally. Technically, the federal funds rate applies to overnight lending because we're in a 24-hour banking world. So these are the moves that settle outside of the so-called banking hours. And this is the rate that all others are based on. For example, prime rate usually runs about three points higher than the federal funds rate. So as of this recording, the federal funds rate is around 4.5% and prime is 7.5%. Mortgage rates today are in the 6 to 7% range as well because the Fed has pushed the federal funds rate so aggressively. 
So you can see how directly this impacts consumers on a significant portion of household expenditures. It's why fixed-rate mortgage holders aren't all that keen to sell right now. Any upside from a sale is likely to go out the window when acquiring a new mortgage for your next place. Likewise, new home buyers are struggling to justify the sudden increase in rates as well, and that's why housing is cooling. The Fed also has the ability to purchase investments. This is usually referred to as adding to the Fed balance sheet. This is one of the primary levers that they had during the financial crisis, for example. The Fed bought everything from treasuries to toxic assets to flood the market with liquidity and prevent financial institutions from going belly up. This was referred to rather elegantly as quantitative easing, and it's something Jerome Powell has been slowly reversing in order to restrict money supply. The other way it can augment or restrict money supply is through tailoring. The Fed has the ability to raise or lower capital requirements at lending institutions. So that's it. Even the Fed characterizes itself as a blunt instrument because of the limited amount of tools in its toolkit, but there's no question that they have some of the most powerful tools in the world. Chapter 3. Crossing the River Let's start with a senator that I despise, because in his own subtle Southern way, he corners Powell to admit what the Fed is trying to do. It's a couple of minutes long, but it's super important, so stick with it and we'll chat on the other side of it. All right, let's try to unpack this then. I'm not trying to trick you. You're raising interest rates. You're raising interest rates to slow the economy, are you not? Yes, to cool the economy off. Um, and one of the ways you measure your success, other than fluctuation in gross domestic product, is the unemployment rate. Is it not? Yes, one of the measures. Okay. So in effect, this, I'm not being critical. When you're slowing the economy, you're trying to put people out of work. That's your job, is it not? Not really. We're trying to we're trying to restore price stability. No, um, you're trying you're trying to raise not, not the wages. you're trying to raise the unemployment rate. There are and, a lot, so and there are a lot me, of that mean I know you don't like the phrase, so let me strike it. You're trying to raise the unemployment rate, are you not? No, we're not trying to raise it. We're trying to realign supply and demand, which could happen through a bunch of channels, like, for example, uh, you know, just job openings. All job right, let openings me, let could... me put it another way, okay? The economists did a, did a wonderful study. They looked at, at, at 10 disinflationary periods in America going all the way back to the 1950s. Disinflation is what you're trying to do. It's a slowing in the rate of inflation. Am I right? Yes. In other words, prices don't go down. They just don't go up as fast. Deflation is when prices actually go down. You're trying to achieve disinflation, are you not? Yes, we are. Okay. Based on history, in the 10 times that we got inflation down, disinflation since the 1950s, in order to reduce inflation by 2%, Unemployment had to go up 3.6%. Now, that's history, is it not? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but yes, the standard has been that there have been recessions and downturns when okay. the Fed has tried to reduce inflation. Now, right now, the, the current inflation rate is 6.4%, and the current unemployment rate is 3.4%. Now, if history is right, I'm not asking you to, 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 again, blame anybody, but if history is right, unless you get some help... In order to get inflation down from 6.4% to, let's say, 4.4%, 4 
And the unemployment rate is going to have to rise to 7% based on history. That's what the record would say. All right, so that's Senator John Kennedy, a real shit given from Louisiana who's perfected the art of bless your heart Southern charm while he's sticking a knife in your spleen. His questioning was really interesting because it began along party lines. It's before this clip, but he tries to honeypot Powell into a fiscal conversation around government spending, but Powell doesn't take the bait. Basically, Kennedy, along with the other Republicans, tried to score highlight reel points by criticizing the Biden administration and government spending, but Powell handily manages each of them. So Kennedy switches gears and goes right at the blunt tools in the Fed arsenal to elicit the response that you just heard. Every questioner from the Democratic side pretty much drove the same lane, which is why I wanted to show a Republican hammering at this point. Powell returns over and over to the idea that it's all about price stability. The price of goods and services must match what we're able to pay or the economy is out of balance. Totally fair. But remember that he has only a couple of ways to impact this equation, one of them being interest rates because it squeezes the economy. Now, we talked about this in the Jimmy Carter series, when cigar-chomping giant Paul Volcker took over the Fed and squeezed the life out of the economy. Well, Powell is doing an ever-so-gentle but consistent version of that right now, and it's hard to see where it will end because the labor market is so strong. The reason interest rate hikes have the ability to tame inflation is because it throws an economy into a recession at a certain point. It just makes everything more difficult. Mortgages are more expensive, so home buying slows down. People stop spending money and start saving it because they can get a better rate in the bank. This takes money out of circulation and slows spending in the economy. And it makes borrowing of all kinds more expensive, especially in the corporate sector. So all of the deals that are done with debt begin to look a little less attractive, so mergers and acquisitions slow down as well. That's the solution that Powell is driving at here, but that doesn't address why we have inflation. Senate Banking Committee Chair Sherrod Brown opened the proceedings by talking about the root causes of inflation in an attempt to set the table for the hearing. Take a listen. Paul Donovan, chief economist of Global Wealth Management at UBS wrote, the Fed should make clear that raising profit margins are spurring inflation. Companies have passed higher costs on to consumers, but they've also taken advantage of circumstances to expand profit margins. The broadening of inflation beyond commodity prices is more profit margin expansion than wage cost pressures. Think about that. By the way, I really like Senator Brown and I don't talk about him enough, so I have to fix that. Interestingly, Powell never capitulates to this concept, meaning he never reveals one way or another anything about what he believes to be the root cause of inflation. For all we know, he believes and understands that inflation is due to latent supply chain shocks, the war in Ukraine, and corporate greed, as pretty much everyone else in politics, economics, and the thinking world knows at this point. All he falls back on is the dual mandate. He knows he can tame inflation. If he gets the interest equation just right, the country will go into a mild recession and about 2 million people will lose their jobs. And the process is to raise rates, reduce the Fed balance sheet, which takes some money out of the system, and increase capital requirements so banks have less money to lend and invest. Well, this scorpion wants to get across the river. So he asks the frog if he'll give him a lift on his back, and the frog says, no, you'd sting me. And the scorpion says, why would I do that? Then we'd both drown. And so the frog said, oh, yes, that's true, okay. So halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog says, now we're both going to die. Why did you sting me? And the scorpion says, 
because I'm a scorpion. Powell's probably not a bad dude. He's just a fucking robot. Watching the hearing, it became evident that he doesn't relish this position. He's resigned to it. It's his job. He knows it will be hard, but it must be done. But does it really? This is about the stories we tell, the myths and legends that persist over time, like the idea that students are too irresponsible to have money in their pocket because they'll buy drugs. The direct child tax payments instead of credits was the perfect example. We now know that people paid down debt, bought food, and caught up on rent with that money, and it lifted millions of children out of poverty in a matter of months. So what did corporate America do? Raised prices on literally everything across the board, and they took that money out of the pockets of everyday citizens and moved it to their own. And who got the blame? Citizens. And so now the Fed is set to punish citizens again because, well, it's a scorpion. Bring it home, Max. There's a terrific book I've referenced before called Narrative Economics by Robert Schiller. In it, he describes the ways stories and legends take hold and impact the real economy. Quote, narratives that occur together in a constellation may have different origins, says Schiller, but in our imaginations, they seem grouped together in terms of some basic idea, and they reinforce one another's contagion, end quote. Schiller describes the power of what's known as the wage-price spiral, one of the central principles that has been used to beat back union power in this country. And in fact, I think we covered it with this exact example and book in our union episode. Essentially, it says that high wages put too much money in the hands of workers, who in turn purchase more items, spurring demand, which causes corporations to increase prices. Now, the central flaw here is that price increases are a necessary response and not an opportunistic response. Again, here's Schiller. Quote, the end of the wage price spiral narrative was marked by changes in monetary policy and the advent of newly popular ideas the independent central bank, and inflation targeting by central banks. The independent central bank was designed to be free from political pressures, which organized labor tries to exploit. Inflation targeting was designed to place controlling inflation on a higher moral ground than appeasing political forces, end quote. So in casting inflation as a moral issue, it targets workers rather than the primary corporate drivers behind rising prices. This is where fiscal intervention should also be considered. And I know that's not a Fed tool, but they have to work hand in hand. That's why Bernie Sanders and others were calling for taxation on profiteering and windfall profits. What's fair is fair. You can't simply blame workers for working and demanding their worth and then blame them further when they do these things and spend money as is their right. Not to mention the blunt focus on beating back worker gains and low unemployment ignores some hardcore realities about the labor market. And we've talked about this as well. In fact, it came up and was even acknowledged in the hearings. After the devastating loss of life during the pandemic and influx of newly retired boomers, the number of available workers declined. Add tight immigration policy to the mix and it only exacerbates the situation. Powell himself pointed to a natural cooling of certain aspects of headline inflation, like rents cooling off and supply chain issues easing. And yet, he persists with the narrative of the dual mandate and the blunt tools at his disposal. There were other points made during the hearings, some of which fell along party lines and others that are seriously problematic. The most transparently corrupt part of the day was during Kirsten Cinema and Cynthia Loomis's periods when they spent their time asking about the future of crypto. And both 
have been linked to crypto lobbying funds, in particular, disgraced Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. And yet, they did their solemn duty to keep crypto in the conversation. Another senator spoke about the looming commercial real estate crisis, with more than $6 trillion in commercial loans coming due for refinancing. A troubling thought, considering commercial real estate is already struggling with the fact that workers simply aren't returning at the levels they once were. It's a crisis in the making for sure, because the refi rates are going to be significantly higher than the original one. Again, though, it's a crisis of their own design, and fuck them, because it's still going to be an issue. In proof of our America First mentality, the one issue that wasn't raised was the impact higher rates have already had on emerging market debt. If Powell continues to increase rates at this pace, it's going to have a devastating impact on foreign debt and potentially lead to crises around the world. Remember, we are money. We are the global economy. There's no mincing words about this. So here we are. For all the collegiality and respect on display at the hearings, the subtext is troublesome. For all the talk of independence, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, I actually wish Biden would channel a bit of Trump here and start rattling some cages over at the Fed. Because remember that Trump browbeat the Fed into holding rates because of his precious stock market, the only thing that he really cared about. Powell positions inflation and wage growth as a Sophie's choice, saying, quote, strong wage growth is good for the workers, but only if it's not eroded by inflation. And technically he's right. But by correlating the two in every way, he's taking blame away from the real inflation culprits and hanging it around the neck of the working class in this country. That's why for all the so-called independence of the Fed, it doesn't mean the Fed can operate in a silo. Fiscal intervention by the government to crack down on profiteering will have a far greater and more positive impact on inflation than creeping rates that squeeze the poor and the middle class. Powell isn't wrong about the Fed's mandate and ability to quell inflation, but it doesn't make him right in using the blunt tools at his disposal to do so. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Okay, everybody, welcome into post-show musings. Happy to be here with you. Happy to be in the studio once again with 99. 99, who, by the way, uh, is a witch. I am? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because show notes will have come out already by this time where you mentioned yet another icon that apparently you you killed. I didn't mean to. All I said was, you're not him. And then he died. Are you waiting for me to say his name? Or yeah. Are you afraid to say yeah, it? Yeah, well, I don't know his name. I, Heim Topol? Heim Topol. That's right. Yeah. He's Fiddler Kevye. on the roof. Yeah. Yeah. He was only like 30 in the movie. Isn't that funny? Oh my God! Are you serious? Yeah, they I made him look do the older. Math on that. Yeah, he was eighty-seven. Said he died <sighs> oh with his God. family. He was in Israel. Apparently, he had dementia. Oh. And I know I saw it at like six o'clock this morning, and then I was like, <laughs> "So I already have plans to watch Filter on the Roof tonight." Homage. I like it. Well, our book love for this week, as you heard, is Narrative Economics by Robert Schiller. That's a, that's one of those good resources that you can just kind of leave on the shelf and dip in and out of. He there's like 
I don't know, 20, 25 chapters that all cover, you know, different type of narratives. And it actually starts out with Bitcoin, which is interesting because the book came out, I think, in 2019. So Bitcoin was super hot. It's pre-pandemic. It's before the collapse of Bitcoin on the exchanges. And you were basically looking at all of the, not just the central banks, but all of the investment banks were trying to figure out like where it fit in their portfolios. And then you started to see some of the, um, uh, they were starting to put up their own exchanges to trade it. So it's interesting that he started with that because I think it, it and and to know now kind of what happened to it on the flip side of it. So it's it's kind of a cool book that way, but it goes through all the different narratives and the stories that we tell to ourselves over time that that kind of take root. Uh, and there's a lot of resources for this. Some of it is from uh, St. Louis Fed. We link to the actual, um, I think it's the PBS NewsHour uh, hearing, by the way. So the timing is a little off in the video, might be frustrating. There might be a better version on C-SPAN that I'm going to look for. Uh, but the hearings were kind of fascinating. And uh, Elizabeth Warren just fucking brought the heat. It was it was kind of awesome because she said the part that nobody wants to say, which is, hey, man, if, if you're not the one, maybe somebody else is. And we got to start thinking about that. But Biden is he's an interesting character this way because he really does I think sometimes honor the institutions over the job itself because he's such a creature of the institutions themselves. And this is where you can kind of get into a little bit of trouble of being part of the system and why people, you know, do tend to want some outsider influence at times. But listen, uh, you know, hopefully it came through that he's not going to stop. And if he's not taken out of the role, there is consensus at the Fed that this is what needs to be done because on the fiscal side of things, with the House and the Senate being split now, we're not going to see any fiscal interventions or any policies that make it more difficult for corporations to uh, to price gouge. So, you know, in one way, he's he's doing I, I, I really, truly believe that he is doing this in, in like a paternal sort of way, like he really thinks like, well, it's just going to be tough medicine and it's my job to get this under control because, you know, my whole job, my whole reason for being is to make sure that inflation doesn't get out of control, but just not seeing the entire picture for some reason, it's very, very frustrating to watch it all unfold. Bottom line to all the unfuckers, and, and this is unfuckers around the globe, if things get really dicey, because we have a super hot labor market here, and I know it's not the same in other countries, but if things get really dicey, it will be because of what Powell did. And what Warren introduced to the equation, more important than just saying maybe you should leave your job, <laughs> is the idea that that once this narrative takes hold, so she said, you know, imagine two million more of our fellow citizens out of work. In every instance that that has happened, and I think she pointed to 10 of them over the last however long period it was, that they, they made these, these same moves that caused a higher unemployment. It didn't end where the Fed wanted it to. And that was really her big takeaway to say, like, you know, you think you're managing to this number, this magic number, but we never hit the number, do we? And he admitted we really don't. She said in every single instance, we go beyond that number and it just begins to cascade because the markets and the economy and you are emotional. And you will act on these instincts. If all of a sudden, you know, three, four people that just lost their jobs and they can't get rehired, you, you know, that that affects you mentally. I mean, it affects you emotionally and it will impact the decisions that you make, no matter how stable or secure that you feel in your job. So these have real emotional consequences and real world consequences. And I wish there was a bigger discussion about the game that we're playing 
in the international markets as well. Because we recovered, China is on the road to recovery, Germany is in a pretty good place. I think Canada's, you know, starting to find their footing. There are some big economies around the world that are doing okay. But a lot of the economies aren't. So look at the UK. Do you think the UK at this point can sustain these type of increases on their debt? And what about any country on the continent of Africa? There's no way that they can sustain it. And we have this kind of leftist socialist revolution that's sweeping through Latin America right at the time that we're going to start to make things much more difficult. It's 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 been the central narrative of, for example, Lula taking back over in Brazil, is that he's coming into things with much different economic uncertainty and circumstances on the ground because of what we're doing to try and beat back inflation and the interest rates on their debt. So this is going to have you know real world consequences and Lula might not be able to carry out all of the social initiatives that he wants to, to carry out in Brazil because of what Jerome Powell is doing. So we just got to think outside of ourselves. And I wish there was more talk about that. Not that anybody would necessarily give a flying fuck in the United States, but, you know, we have to we have to admit these realities. So anyway, I hope everybody dug that. We have uh, I'm going to split these up and, and put them on YouTube as well and kind of two different stories. We've got uh, a couple other things coming up. We're actually going to rehash modern monetary theory because I think it's so it's it's such an important part of the discussion. So we're going to put that up on YouTube as well. So we have some things coming up there. Uh, and then next week, we actually have two options for what the full unfucking is going to be. And I can't say yet which one it's going to be. But we've got some really good um, topical and timely stuff coming up. Do you want to know my takeaway from this episode? Please. Uh, whoever created Polefish just looked at SurveyMonkey and said, Synonyms. Maybe they put it into chat GPT. Yeah. They were like, hmm, what's another word for a survey? Okay, poll. What's another animal? All right. <laughs> Fish. We got it. Um, speaking of AI, chat GPT, and all that, you know I love Alan Alda. Okay. Is he turning into an AI or something? No, but I have to say, and I listened I, I listened to his podcast because he has really interesting guests on, and he's just such I just, just I want him to be to my grandfather because you listen to it and I love him, I, but I want him to be my grandfather. Like some of the episodes are just like kind of meandering and super boring, but I listen to it because I want him to be my grandfather. Interesting for a grandfather, not father. I feel like grandfather is a little offensive. He's so old. At this I don't point. think he's so that old. He's right. So he's kind of in between, I think, where my old man is and where my grandparents would be. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But I see him as grandfatherly. Not. It's also a reflection of the fact that I still think I'm 30 and I'm not. Mm -hmm. so, That's possible. Yeah. Um, but his most recent episode is on AI and he conducts. So his guests are multiple chatbots. Oh, fun. And it's really well done. Hmm. It's really, really cool. I got a like, you know, tip of the cap. It's just a very good podcast. So I think the uh, the show is called Clear and Vivid. Check it out if you get a chance. Uh, I think it's it's really cool and it's really troubling. I told my roommate to write a cover letter for a job on ChatGPT. And it did a pretty good job. Yeah. Like we had to fix it. But like the hardest, I mean, cover letters are, should be fucking obsolete. That's number one. No doubt. No one reads them and nope. they're just a rehashing of your resume. It's stupid. But um, yeah, the hardest part of a cover letter is starting. So just here's the job description. Here's my resume. Write me a cover letter. Yeah. And I took maybe like 30 minutes, maybe an hour max to fix it. But that's like, you know, four hours you would have just stared at a blank page. So. I am 
resisting. I haven't gone on it yet. I hadn't either, actually. I've only been reading about it because yeah. I sort of felt like once I entered, they want your phone number. And I was like, were you going to call me? <laughs> no, but I had to do it. It was stupid. Hi, it's 99. Hello, 99. It's chat GPT. But you know, at this what point, it's going to have a human voice. Oh, <laughs> we're going there. Interesting. <laughs> listen to the listen to the episode with Alan Alda. There's a there's like an old video that of like two AIs talking to each other and they immediately get into like, is there a God? Like very quickly Good devolve. Lord. And because it, it was like very early AI, I'll, I'll link the video if I can find it. It's really funny, actually. Um, but yeah, it's like before it was it wasn't like sentience necessarily, obviously, but it was I don't know. Just when you ask a philosophical question back and forth, I suppose, mm. it turns into that. So I'm resisting the temptation to look at it, not because we're not talking about it all the time in our daily lives, and our work yeah, lives. it's exhausting. <laughs> but um, there's some powerful aspects to it now, and a lot is going to change on the horizon. And these are things that we need to be in our work lives. We have to be cognizant of it, and we have to incorporate some of the technology as we as we do with any technology into our into our work lives and daily lives. I what's stopping me from doing it because I can imagine that it would be so easy for me to tee up a topic and put in the books and the resources and the articles and say, because, you know, when I look at the page, sometimes I'll sit there, it'll be two days before recording and I'll still have a blank page and just, you know, thousands of notes and, you know, dog-eared books around me. And, but it's, it's the process that inevitably almost every time brings me to a different conclusion than the one that I started with. And what happens to that type of critical thinking and conclusion drawing when we allow others to, to draw it for us, right? I'm going to see if I can log into it right now and see if I can, if it knows who you are and then see if they'll. All right. So I asked ChatGPT, can you write a paragraph in the style of Max from Unfucking the Republic? I don't know if it knows who you are, but this, this says absolutely. Here goes. So this is now the paragraph. Listen up, people. We need to talk about the state of our republic. It's a hot mess, a dumpster fire, a clusterfuck of epic proportions. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. We have the power to unfuck this situation, to take back control from the corrupt politicians, the greedy corporations, and the clueless bureaucrats. It won't be easy and it won't happen overnight, but we can do it if we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get to work. So let's stop whining and start winning because the fate of our republic is in our hands. <laughs> I know, it's a little scary. And it even has like eye tells like you would do. <laughs> I, okay. Can you, let's I have see. so many thoughts. Can you write a paragraph in the style of 99 from unfucking? It's going to be like, fuck all men, <laughs> if it even can figure this out. It's thinking. Okay. Okay. It's not terrible. This is my, it, this is me. Hey there, fellow citizens. It's your friendly neighborhood 99 here. And I gotta say, things are looking pretty bleak right now. The powers that be are doing their best to keep us down, but we're not going to let them, are we? No way. We're going to band together and show them what we're made of. We're going to protest, organize, and make our voices heard. And yeah, it might be a little scary at first, but we've got each other's backs, and that's what really matters. So let's get out there and start unfucking the Republic one step at a time. <laughs> I think that one's more of a regurgitation of our site copy. Yeah. 
but uh, still. Okay. Put in, um, write a paragraph on how hip hop can save the world <laughs> in the style of Manny. Faces. Well, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna put Manny faces because maybe it'll just know because it'll. His podcast, his other podcast, is called Hip Hop Can Save America. I just, I think. Mm. Is it America or I the world? I think it's America. Okay. Yeah. And the, we'll see if it sounds like many faces. Oh my god, this is eating my soul. By the way, <laughs> this is quite long. Okay. It'd be great if it just said it can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe like fuck you. I'm gonna I'm gonna copy it and we can I'll read it I'll copy it and I'll also send it to Manny in case he wants to read it himself and it'll be funny. Hip hop has always been more than just a musical genre. It's a cultural movement that has the power to bring people together, break down barriers, and inspire change. That's exactly what America needs right now. Hip hop can save America by giving voice to the voiceless, shining a light on the injustices that plague our society, and empowering young people to make a difference in their communities. From Public Enemy to Kendrick Lamar, hip-hop artists have always been at the forefront of social and political issues, using their platform to raise awareness and demand action. With its emphasis on creativity, self-expression, and collaboration, hip-hop offers a powerful alternative to the divisive, fear-mongering rhetoric that dominates our national discourse. So let's embrace hip-hop as a force for positive change. Let it guide us all to a brighter, more unified future for all Americans. I am so curious to hear what he has to say. My guess is he'll take issue with uh, uh, the artist references in particular, but, um, or maybe not. I don't know. I don't think he's anti-public enemy. No, not at all. I just think that he would, he would reach deeper, Yeah, you know, for independent artists and stuff like that. I'll I'll actually say it's pretty good, actually, like almost embarrassingly good. Like, I, I don't know if I could have said it much better myself. Yeah, I get what you're saying about, you know, going a little deeper than surface level artists and, of course, surface level answers. But, you know, for a synopsis, for a general public kind of a synopsis, that's really not bad, man. It's 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 uh, it's scary good. <laughs> I like that it has like a, a rallying cry at the end of all of ours. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> we can do it. Yeah. So, um, OK, we're a little off topic, obviously, but. It is about narratives and prevailing narratives. And there's absolutely no question that artificial intelligence is going to impact our storytelling and the things that we believe, if it has not already. And the things people are saying. Absolutely. Because if if you're not a writer, if you're not, like, some people really struggle, they might have eloquent thoughts, but just can't put them on the page. Yeah. I mean, what does it mean for speech writing? Yeah. What does it mean for anything, really? Mm-hmm. Cover letters. I mean, they're already, we've talked about, like, trying to rule out how kids are writing papers with it, which I say, fucking let them. I don't care. Yeah, as long I, as they I, turn I, it in. <laughs> I think. Uh, I would just let it fly if I was a teacher. We talked about the art of the in-class essay. Just have them, have them outline it in no, class. No, this is a fucking DBQ. Right? I'm out. <laughs> DBQs. Oh, the, the bane of my youngest existence. Good Lord. It's they're triggering. I hadn't heard the phrase in a long time till like a year ago, and so yeah. I heard DBQ, and I was like, Ugh. "Yeah, yeah." Ugh. We actually we had a back in the day in the newsroom. We had a, a writer who was like our human equivalent of Chat GPT because we were running up against it, and we didn't have time to like, or like a cover story just wasn't ready, mm-hmm. or even a feature story wasn't ready. We'd just sort of sheepishly poke our heads in and be like, so like, what do you need? <laughs> and then boom, you'd have like 3,500 clean, you know, words by that night, you know, took some vetting and some massaging. But I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty extraordinary. 
So yeah, it's like everybody having that guy at their fingertips now. It's incredible. Anyway. All right, folks, we will uh, catch you during the week again with show notes. We'll catch you next weekend with another episode. We love you all. And uh, thank you for your continued ongoing support. 99, catch you uh, on the flip side. R.I.P. Tevye. All right. You don't want to do it your outro? As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro Manny Faces. It is lovingly produced by the omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-seeing 99. That's you. Whoa. Mm-hmm. All the original music is done by Tom McGovern. TomMcGovern.com is where you can find him. He's blown up. He's a star. What, what's the name of his uh, band now? Wolves of Glendale. Wolves of Glendale. Get on it, people, Plus, if you're not on it. I saw him in some ad on Instagram for like, some singing app. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's getting his bag. He's blowing up. I love it. And I'm Max. And everything that you need to know about the show, ways to support us, purchase the coffee, to come on over because we're leaving Substack in a minute. Come on over. Come on over to UNFTR.com to find all of the things. And you'll find them beautifully, perfectly organized because of the aforementioned all-powerful 99. ChatGPT. And ChatGPT. Bye. Bye. Hey, boy, don't you know I got something going on. Yes, I do.